Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. My name is Miles Wilson, and as always, welcome back to another episode of the Judgment Call podcast. Today, I have plenty for you. There was plenty of action during Wild Card Weekend. Finally, some coaches got hired, so I can talk about the coaching carousel. I really did not feel like talking about the coaching carousel at all with no one being hired that like I could speculate but if you know me I really don't like speculation I don't even like giving predictions for anything I like give, getting the facts straight I like give, giving analysis of things I like saying why things happened and why things should happen instead of just predicting I feel like that's lazy so I'm so glad that some coaches finally got hired I may even end up talking about each and every coaching hire in a completely separate episode. So for right now, I'm going to go ahead and get into the wild card weekend wrap up. I If I end up doing it, you'll obviously hear it. If not, it'll be at the end of the podcast. So I am going to start. I'm going to do the games in order of which I enjoyed them. And I'm going to start with the Titans playing the Patriots in New England. On this past Saturday, the Tennessee Titans beat the New England Patriots 20-13 and knocked them out of the playoffs in the wildcard round. And this was by far my favorite game of the weekend just because of how much the Titans were being counted out so heavily. And I give them full credit for beating the Patriots. Last podcast, I started off breaking down the matchups and I was talking about how I had the Patriots as the underdog in this game. I did not think that the Patriots should have been favored. Like, even though all the odds were against the Titans, it was a first-year quarterback in the playoffs. It was Mike Vrabel's first time ever being a coach in the playoff. And when you look at that and when you look at the history of the New England Patriots, you think that they have to win this game. Of course they're going to win this game. This is a game that the Patriots win. This should be a walk in the park for the Patriots. They have home field advantage. January... In Gillette Stadium against two first-timers, you'd think that the Patriots win this game. History would tell you that they win this game, and they didn't. The Titans outgame planned them. They outplayed them, and they had the better game. And I also want to give credit to the way the Titans won this game. Like, they didn't try and get too cute. A lot of times, teams will get in the playoffs, especially their first time in the playoffs. They'll get in, and they won't commit to what got them there in the first place. They'll try something new. They'll try and switch it up. They'll try and throw the other team off the scent, which is good sometimes. It's good to throw wrinkles in your offense every now and then to switch things up slightly. But you don't want to completely abandon what got you to the playoffs in the first place. But the Tennessee Titans stuck to it, exactly won them games since benching their backup quarterback, their now backup quarterback anyway, Marcus Mariota. They knew that against the Patriots, to win this game, they would have to rely heavily on their running back, Derrick Henry. That's been the tale of the Titans these past few weeks. Derrick Henry gets the ball, equals a Titans win. Derrick Henry doesn't get the ball, the Titans are going to lose the game. Literally, you can go back, look, I went and checked myself in every single loss since week six when they benched Marcus Mariota. Derrick Henry either had under 20, under 20 carries or didn't score a touchdown. And every single loss since week six, when they benched Marcus Mariota, they lost the game. It was because Derrick Henry either had under 20 carries or didn't score a touchdown. And in every win, it's the exact opposite. Either Derrick Henry had 20 or more carries or Derrick Henry had one or two touchdowns. He even had three in a couple of games. And on Saturday, the Titans gave 
Derrick Henry the ball 34 times for 182 yards and a touchdown. He also had a 22-yard reception that was vital to their score before halftime, which virtually was the last score of the game until a garbage time pick six, which didn't really affect the outcome of the game. The Titans had already won. It was eight seconds left. And everything that the Titans did on Saturday was impressive. Their own line created big holes for Henry to run through that allowed Tennessee to control the time of possession. The defense made multiple key stops, especially in two red zone trips. One was a goal line stand that pretty much you could say, like looking back in hindsight, won them the game, holding New England to three points instead of seven. They held them to two field goals in those two red zone trips. They made excellent halftime adjustments that held the Patriots to only 85 yards on all very short, quick drives that allowed them to get the ball back and waste more time running the ball. And even after that, the biggest contributor for these kinds of drives, and personally, my team MVP for the Titans, was a punter. The Brett, Brett Kern, the Tennessee Titans punter, all-pro punter, Pro Bowl punter at that, arguably set the Titans up the most for success. In the second half, literally every single punt, Brett Kern kicked, pinned the Patriots inside their own 15-yard line, giving them very little room, little to no room to work with at all to call plays. Their playbook was short and they couldn't call long developing routes to give up a sack, possibly get a safety. They had to basically shorten their playbook, only had a very few set of plays, and that was all thanks to punter Brett Kern. I really think that he is the unsug hero of this game. Yes, we knew that they would rely on Derrick Henry, even though Ryan Tannehill is a solid quarterback. He's not a quarterback that can win you games. We knew the game plan going into this game was probably hand Derrick Henry the ball as many times as possible, waste as much time as possible. Ben, don't break on defense. That was probably the game plan. That's what most people thought. But who knew that the punter would set them up in such advantageous positions to stop the Patriots from scoring. When you have to drive 85 yards, 80 yards, 90 yards, every single time you get the ball, that's draining. Like, it's literally depressing. You don't have, one, a chance to even return the kickback. Two, you can't, you can only call so many plays. And three, the Patriots didn't even try to, call that many plays that went very far down the field. They tried to call a few run plays, some very short developing routes. And it was like, great job. Like, a lot of people won't talk about it, but even though Derrick Henry was fantastic, and he was fantastic, you have to give props to the punter, Brett Kern, for what he did on Saturday. And the Titans not only did that, they executed their game plan as good as you can in every phase of the game, and they deserve all the respect for how they won that game on Saturday. But conversely, for the Patriots, they struggled with the same problems I discussed a few months ago. If you were listening, if you're a new listener, welcome. But if you are a new listener or you just didn't hear the podcast, a few months ago, I did talk about the Patriot problem and what the problem was with the New England Patriots after they lost to, I believe it was the game after they lost to the Ravens. And I talked about how they lost, what went wrong. And then I ended up making it in a separate episode. Well, after I broke down the game, I talked about what is going on with the Patriots. Why are the Patriots starting to lose games? And it was simple. The wide receivers were bad. 
They dropped a lot of balls. They ran routes poorly. They were in the wrong spots. They did not create separation at all. And on top of that, their O-line was unimpressive. They gave up a lot of pressures, even though Brady was only sacked once. He was pressured. He had to throw the ball away multiple times. The defensive line did get much push against the Titans O-line. They kind of just got thrown around. But for the most part, the loss doesn't fall on the shoulders of the defense. Like, they were fine up until the last eight seconds of the game. The score was 14-13. The Patriots defense got stopped. The problem was, even after the defense got stops, forced the Titans to punt, they lost the game because of the offense and its inability to capitalize. And that doesn't fall on the shoulders of Tom Brady either. And it's like, this is why you hear so much of the talk that Brady's not going to play in New England next year. Well, one, I'm not buying into the fact that Brady's retiring at all. It's just, I can't believe that. You watch that game and you see some of the throws he made. And it's like, yeah, he's definitely still got it. That ball has plenty of velocity. It's accurate. He's still got plenty of left in the tank. But the thing is, do I think Tom Brady returns to New England after I've watched for most of the season the product that they've had on field? And my answer is maybe. I don't think Brady is going to stop playing football. That's one thing I don't think he will do. But if he does play football again, will it be in New England? It's yes with a caveat and no if they don't fix certain things. If Tom Brady returns to New England, and this should be the only reason that he returns to New England, it's because the front office got him some much needed help. And I mean like a complete rehaul of the wide receiver core and the offensive line. Anything less than that. And Tom Brady should absolutely think about exploring his options as his first time as a free agent. And even then, like before I recorded this podcast, he did post on Instagram like after the game. If you didn't see it, one of the reporters was asking questions. She was like trying to basically get a soundbite where she was asking, hey, do you want to thank the fans? Do you want to say anything to the fans about this game or about the past decade and to 20 years of football? And the way she worded it, it kind of seemed like a poor question, but. I guess Tom Brady finally came around. He ended up posting something on Instagram about it, a very long Instagram post. And towards the end, it was kind of like he was hinting at coming back to New England. I'm not sure if they'll give Tom Brady any kind of control as far as roster moves and saying what he wants. Because clearly this year, you could tell that it was still in the hands of Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick. They cut Antonio Brown. Granted, there was a lot of off-field stuff happening. They cut Josh Gordon. Granted, he did end up getting suspended a couple weeks later. And then they didn't really bring him in any help. They also cut Demarius Thomas like twice at the beginning of the season. Their offensive offense looked promising at the beginning of the year. And then they just cut three of their receivers and left them with Philip Dorsett, Mohamed Sanu, and the guy who led the league in drops, Julian Edelman. So you don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows except for Tom Brady. And we, we don't even know if Tom Brady knows. He still could be undecided about if he wants to come back or not. But as far as I can tell, and in my opinion, he should not come back to play for the New England Patriots unless they bring him some much needed help. Now, the second game that I thought was the most interesting was the Bills going to Houston to play the Texans. And the Texans beat the Bills 22 to 19. 
And at one point, the Bills had a 16 to nothing lead on the Texans. And for the record, I said before the game in my previous podcast where I broke down the mess, the matchups, I said that if the Bills win, it would be because of their great defense and that but you can never count out a guy like Deshaun Watson. If the Texans win, it will be because Deshaun Watson made some incredible plays. And early on, it looked like that's exactly what was going to happen. It looked like the Bills were going to win. They were going to pull it off because of the amount of pressure they were getting on Deshaun Watson, how relentless their defense was becoming, how many sacks they were getting on him. They were really getting after Deshaun Watson. Their defense was playing fantastic. When they were shutting out the Texans, the Bills had four sacks, a forced fumble, and only allowed 77 total yards of offense. DeAndre Hopkins didn't even have a catch. Shredavious White was playing fantastic defense on him. And then the Texans' offense started to click. And at the same time, the Bills, not just the defense, the offense and the defense started to make mistakes. Bill O'Brien started getting the ball to his playmakers. Watson really started to make plays with his legs and, and his arm, honestly. He just was fantastic down the stretch. They started calling shorter routes to get DeAndre Hopkins involved. At first, they had him running routes that were about 10 to 15 yards downfield. They took a little while to develop, so when he tried to target him, the pressure was already back there, and he couldn't really do much about it. In the second half, they started calling little short little five-yard out routes, five-yard digs, slants. They tried to get him involved more, and it started to work. The Bills started to slip up. The offense did not score another touchdown. The Bills offense did not score another touchdown for the rest of the game. They started to make mistakes. The defense got unnecessarily aggressive. Josh Allen's decision-making completely eroded. And this was the result. The Bills lost 22-19. And while I'm on the topic of this, there was a lot of questionable decisions made by both sides down the stretch of this game. Josh Allen... He looked good early on. It's weird because he usually struggles at the beginning of games and then starts to warm up. He comes around towards the end of games. But this game, he started off good. He started off hot, playing fine, and then slowly he started forcing balls into double coverage. Out of nowhere, he, start, he decided to lateral a ball out of bounds or to the tight end that was 15 yards behind him. He got lucky that the tight end got close enough to the ball to bat it out of bounds. They completely abandoned the run game and the short pass game in favor of much more long developing routes and only running when it was completely obvious because the short passes to Devin Singletary were working. Handing it off to Devin Singletary was working, too. He was breaking all kinds of tackles. It was working perfectly fine. And they just decided to abandon it, go for deep routes. I was like, why? And then at the same time, Houston decided to go for it on a fourth and one on Buffalo's 30 yard line when a punt virtually seals the game because the Bills had not gained any yards more than 25 in a single drive in the second half. Their offense completely stalled, but for some reason, they went for it on fourth and one. They didn't get it, and it allowed the game to go into overtime. Even though they won, it was still a very, very bad decision, a questionable decision. In my opinion, it was terrible. Luckily, they won, so no one's even going to talk about it, but... To me, this game did seem like a tale of two halves. As the game got closer and closer to the end and the moment grew bigger, Deshaun Watson stepped up and Josh Allen shrunk. 
The Bills' inexperience really showed, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. At least in my eyes. It's so much easier to learn from your mistakes than it is from your successes. It's like the game against the Seahawks and the 49ers earlier this year. The 49ers pretty much did everything right, but they missed a kick. And it was because their kicker was injured. They had to rely on a rookie kicker. They did pretty much everything right in that game, but they lost. It's so much easier to learn when you actually made some mistakes and you see that, ah, oh, we did this wrong, we could do better. But the 49ers couldn't have done anything better in this game. It's just like, well, next time let's hope our kicker's healthy. But for the Bills, they made some mistakes. They did some things wrong, and that's perfectly fine. You can always go back, look at the tape, and be like, hey, let's, let's look at this. We, we can fix this. We can do this better. We can do that better. We can execute better here. We can capitalize better when we're in these kinds of situations. I really do think that the Bills are primed for success in the future. They have a good young quarterback. Devin Singletary played great. The defense is young and getting better. And they may have really found something with wide receiver Duke Williams. He only had four catches for like 50 yards, but he was making some incredible catches. He had a couple catches that didn't count. There were some penalties on some catches that he made. Overall, I was really impressed by his route running. I was really impressed by his catch radius. He had very strong hands. I don't think he dropped a single ball. But I was impressed. I think they have something with Duke Williams. And more importantly, the Patriots could be falling apart right before our very eyes. And the Bills could be up next in the AFC East. Like, this is all very possible. So, Bills fans, do not hang your heads too low. It's okay. No one expected you to get this far. Not even you guys. Now, the next game that I thought was the most interesting of the weekend was the NFC matchup between the Vikings and the Saints. The Saints lost at home to the Vikings in overtime, and the score was 26 to 20, and man, the Saints really blew it. It wasn't like the Bills game, where they had some significant lead for the most part of the game, but man, they had so many opportunities that they just missed. The first drive of the game, Minnesota fumbles the ball. New Orleans gets excellent field position. They got all the way down to the 11-yard line and only got three points. You have to realize, we are in New Orleans. Minnesota fumbles on the first drive of the game. New Orleans has an opportunity to get the ball, score, and gain all the momentum for the rest of the game. The entire state of New Orleans would be cheering for them. The stadium would be loud. It would be... All the momentum would be in their favor, and they only got away with three points. They got all the way down to the 11-yard line and could not score a touchdown. In the second, they scored a touchdown to take the lead. Okay, good. Now they're up 10-3. to three. Then the immediate drive, they hold the Saints to three more points. The score is now 10-6. to six. And the drive was really long, too. It was a nearly seven-minute drive where they had a goal line stand, and they had an opportunity to score with about three minutes left. Their offense had to be going okay. It hadn't been stagnant or anything. Their offense had been moving sometimes. But then, with three minutes left on the clock, Drew Brees forced a really bad pass into double coverage that got picked off by Anthony Harris. And Minnesota responded with a touchdown to take the lead. And it was really bad. There were They, ran, they had two drag routes underneath, and they sent a wide receiver going straight down the field. The two safeties bit, 
on the guy going down the field. Dead a linebacker take the underneath drag. There was a guy wide open for a first down. There were three minutes left on the clock. It's not like they were in a two-minute drill or anything like that. They didn't need to rush at all. But for some reason, Drew Brees went for it all, got picked off, and the Vikings scored a touchdown to take the lead going into halftime. And then even then, after that happened, there were about 23 seconds left on the clock. They kicked it off to the return man, Deontay Harris. They kicked it off to the return man, Deontay Harris. And he set them up with a beautiful 54-yard return. It breezed on that drive. He, after he got the return, there were about 20 seconds left. He dropped a beautiful dime to Michael Thomas on a 20-yard reception. And that got them all the way down to the 25-yard line, where all they had to do was kick a 43-yard field goal. You make it, tied it up at halftime. Well, Will Lutz missed that field goal. All game long, the Saints really struggled to move the ball. And when they finally did or got good field position or finally caught a break, they either didn't capitalize or they only came away with three points. Their only solid drive of the game came at the beginning of the fourth quarter. It was an eight-play drive for 85 yards. Four minutes and 22 seconds came off the clock. Only two other drives were at least four minutes long, and one ended in a punt, the other ended in a field goal. All three of those were three quarters apart. But where the Saints failed is where the Vikings succeeded. The Vikings dominated the time of possession. They committed to the run game. They were way more efficient on third downs. And to be honest, they won a game that I didn't think they stood a chance in. Minnesota, I still think is fool's gold simply because they only beat one team over 500, which was the Philadelphia Eagles, in the regular season. And they didn't look great in most of the games that they played. But they did do a great job of this game. I will not take anything away from the Philadelphia Eagles. No. I would not take anything away from the Minnesota Vikings. I do also want to commend Kirk Cousins for some of the throws he made in this game, especially in the late game, down the stretch, and for not giving the ball away also. Like, everybody knows that Kirk Cousins throughout his career has struggled in primetime games. He still has not won a Monday night game. He is 0 for 9 on Monday night games. But he did get his first playoff win. He did not play bad. He did exactly what the Vikings asked of him. He didn't turn the ball over. He made an incredible throw in overtime. And he also threw the game-winning touchdown. So congratulations to Kirk Cousins on his first playoff win. And congratulations for not screwing his team over. But on top of that, the Saints really have to stop allowing the refs to inject themselves into the game. On that same touchdown pass I just talked about that Kirk Cousins threw in overtime to Kyle Rudolph, it was controversial whether or not that offensive pass interference should be called on that play. And I feel like at this point, they just want someone to blame for their shortcomings, when in reality, they really need to capitalize better so the refs don't have the opportunity to inject themselves in the outcome of the game, which... Regardless, it was a first down on the, what, 10-yard line. So either way, they'd have three more chances to go for it. So 
it really doesn't change the outcome of the game at all. But I guess if that makes you sleep better at night, then sure. But the Saints really have to do a better job of capitalizing in the playoffs. Because, <clears throat> man, I hate it. I hate it for them. But major bed, got to sleep in it. And that doesn't even mean you have to play a mistake-free fo- game of football. I know that's impossible. But, man, at least at the at least you can do is con- is control what you can effectively. Anything the rest do, out of your control. You can only challenge so much. And even if you do challenge something, they may or may not overturn it. Overturn it. But you can control anything that happens offensively, defensively, your execution, special teams, anything like that. The Saints did not. Now, before I move on to the Seattle and Philadelphia game, the game I found the least interesting of the four, I'm going to take a very long, slow sip of water because it is hard to talk for like an hour straight. So, uh, you excuse me. Yeah, that was fantastic. All right, now we have the Seattle Seahawks going into Philadelphia where they beat them 17 to 9. And I'm going to be honest about this game. Once Carson Wentz got hurt, I had little to no interest in this game. I actually literally went to go get food because I was like, oh, well, who's the backup? Not Nick Foles? Okay. Well, I'm hungry. I'm going to go get some food. I really have no interest in this game. The only reason I wanted to watch this game is because I wanted to watch two dynamic quarterbacks battle it out. And I feel like we were robbed of what could have been a really good game. Although, we were robbed of this experience. We were robbed of Carson Wentz's first playoff game. I do have two takeaways from this. Number one is Carson Wentz gets hurt really often. And yes, I know, obvious things are obvious. But the Eagles really have a problem here. This was his first playoff experience ever. Even the year that he almost won MVP, he got hurt towards ACL the game before, and he never got to play. And this time, his experience only lasted four pass attempts before he was knocked out of the game on a hit that may or may not be dirty. I'm not here to talk about the hit. I'm here to talk about Carson Wentz. But it only lasted four pass attempts. Now, Wentz is a very good quarterback. But it is possible that this becomes a big deal for the Eagles in the future. He's now had an injury in every single season of his career. But I do commend him, however, while, while we are talking, about, I do commend him for coming back every single year and being very consistent with his production. But, however, if Carson Wentz can't stay healthy for more than 16 games, you have to call into question how much of a threat the Eagles can be in the postseason long term because if your quarterback can get you there but he can't get you any further than there well now what are you going to have a starting caliber backup quarterback that you're going to pay 20 million dollars a year no you're not going to do that but you do have to call into question can he be a franchise starting quarterback not because of his talent because he is definitely talented enough to be a franchise starting quarterback but can he be that because of his injury history that I'm not sure I'm sure we will find out within the next year or two should he get injured next year or within the next two years but 
I am definitely concerned about that because this has been four years in a row now. He's been hurt. His rookie year, sophomore year, junior year, and now his fourth year in the league. Every single year he's had an injury. Three of the years it has sidelined him. But for now, we will see what happens. Now, the second takeaway I got from this game is that DK Metcalf, the Seahawks wide receiver, landed in the absolute perfect spot. Now, during the combine and out of college, everyone saw how gifted he was physically. The problem was that he had the mobility of a dump truck on a hairpin turn. And most teams wouldn't have much use for a guy that could only run three routes. So it's perfectly understandable to see why he fell towards the late second round, but he couldn't have landed in a better spot. The Seattle Seahawks really embraced his strengths and weaknesses. And instead of trying to fit a square block and a round peg, they just ask him to run what he can do. They don't ask him to run any technical routes. They just allow him to be their deep dirt. Maybe this offseason they'll get him a wide receiver coach to help him get more surgical with his route running. But I am impressed with his development over the season. Early on, he didn't have a great... Well, he wasn't very good at jump balls, which is surprising because he is a massive human being. He's like 6'4", 6'5", 250 pounds. That's an exaggeration. He's like 230 pounds. He looks 250 pounds. But he is like 6'4", 6'5". But he didn't have the strongest of hands. He wasn't fantastic at catching jump balls earlier in the season. But he has gotten better at it. He's gotten better at tracking balls. He's gotten better at catching balls contested. He's gotten better at he's gotten better at running his routes deeper. Usually at, at the beginning of the season, they had him run two routes. They had him run a crossing route, and they had him run a go route, which is one running straight across the field, and one is running straight up the field. Now, they have him running slants. They have him running digs. They have him running crossing routes, post routes, and, and go routes. Which is impressive. They slowly got him on during the course of the season. And if you do know anything about how hard it is to learn new things during the course of the season, it's hard. You don't have much time for that. You have to game plan. You have to practice. There isn't much time to learn new skills. But they did bring him along throughout the season. And I am impressed with how he has grown and developed this season. Now, since we are done with the wildcard matchups, I will talk a little bit about the coaching carousel. So Black Monday came and went. The Cowboys finally parted ways with Jason Garrett. And in total, five coaches were fired. This doesn't include coordinators or anything like that. It's just head coaches. Five head coaches were fired. There was Jay Gruden, the coach of the Redskins. Ron Rivera, the coach of the Panthers. Pat Shermer, the Giants head coach. Jason Garrett, finally, the Cowboys head coach. And the head coach of the Browns, Freddie Kitchens. All five of these teams, and four of them have found their head coach of the future, except for the Cleveland Browns. Since one, it's not very surprising because they're the last team standing. Because one, they did fire their GM, John Dorsey. But... Quite frankly, it's not a very attractive job. The Browns organization is dysfunctional and poorly ran. 
the coaches are given a very, very, very short leaf for some reason. They've had seven coaches in the last decade. And results are expected immediately for some reason. So why would anyone want to go there? That sounds like a coach's nightmare. And if I'm being honest, I thought they'd already found their guy in Greg Williams last year. After after they fired Hugh Jackson, Greg Williams did fine. He led him to an 8-5 and five record. And it seemed like Baker was really thriving in that offense. But then they fired him. And now I think they will have a really hard time getting high-end coaches on the phone. Even to pick up the phone. Like a lot of teams like the Giants. The Giants stink. But they could at least get a team on the phone. I think the Browns will have a hard time even getting people to pick up the phone. And then even guys that may want to get their feet wet in NFL waters like Urban Meyer, Lincoln Riley, probably will either not answer the phone or be extremely hesitant to take that phone call and take that risk. Because if we're being honest, the Browns used to be where players' careers go to die. It still might be. It's possible. It could be a career graveyard. But it is definitely where coaches' careers go to die. And I don't think anybody wants to take that chance. And you know what? I will save this for a separate podcast episode because I do think it is important enough to discuss the importance of each of these new head coaches' roles for each of the four teams. So the Panthers, the Giants, the Cowboys, and the Redskins. The Redskins hired... Ron Rivera, the Panthers hired hired the Baylor coach, Matt Rule. The Giants hired special teams coordinator from the Patriots, Joe Judge. And the Cowboys hired former Packers head coach, Mike McCarthy. I do think that all four of those head coaches are important enough to talk about on their own. And since the Browns haven't hired one, it was easy to get that out of the way. So we'll go ahead and talk about them next time. I probably will also talk about... The quarterback out of Georgia that just declared for the draft, Jake Fromm. I may or may not do a film analysis on him to see if he's ready or not for the draft. But other than that, I am done for the day. I have taken up all the time that I need to. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate each and every one of you that do make it this far and listen to my podcast every time. And that's all I got for you today. I really appreciate you guys. If you did make it this far, also share the podcast. I'm assuming that you heard something that you did like, and I appreciate it. My name again is Miles Wilson, and this has been the Judgment Call Podcast. I'll see you when I see you. Thank you so much for listening.